0: Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business.
2: Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm one of the co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hi, Andy. And also Hugh hey. Son. Hey, Hugh. It's, it's Andrew, right? It's Andrew, Andy. I've been called you know a lot worse, <laughs> but I, you know, I'll prefer one of those two. Today, we have the distinguished privilege of having a return guest, bassist in the section, the LA Session Collective that was to the 70s, what the Wrecking Crew were to the 60s. Leland Sklar helped define the 70s singer-songwriter sound. One of the greatest bass players of all time. He's performed with, honestly, just about everybody. This is one of those resumes that goes on and on. Why wouldn't it? The guy's on like 2,000 albums uh carol king linda ronstadt toto lyle lovett phil collins hollow notes warren Zevon, rod stewart jackson brown james taylor you name it i ran out of air there for a second <laughs> also the uh release of the movie the immediate family which i've yeah. seen the trailer for and it looks super badass and the yeah, new album skin in awesome. the game so welcome to the music buzz or I should say welcome back leland <laughs> Scholar
3: it is a joy to be here. You know, I've been sitting here at my computer waiting to talk to you guys again. And uh, it's been a while. So I'm, I, since I, last night, right? Yeah, actually, <laughs> I, was clean, I was clean shaven when I sat down. So, you, so you have been practicing this. <laughs> oh, That's absolutely. Over One and, over. and two. <laughs> the countdown. Uh, it's, great to, it's great to see you again. Oh,
1: we're glad to Likewise. have you back, man. Um, last time at the end of the conversation, when, when it was just us talking, um, I touched on a couple things and we, we kind of grazed over them a little bit, but there's a few projects. I mean, gosh, you played with everybody. It's pretty incredible, but you know, four or five of my favorite records of all time you've played on. That's pretty amazing for one dude to have done and in different genres. And I would like to start out with probably my, I'm going to say my, at least in my top five fusion records of all time, the Billy Cobham spectrum record. Oh yeah. Um, with the late, great Tommy Bolin, Jan Hammer. Um, can you take us back for a second? And and I know it was a quick, cause I remember you tell me it was a couple of days or something in New York or whatever, but can you talk about that project? I mean, that, that project that inspired Jeff Beck to, to be a fusion guy, to do blow-by-blow. Yeah, it, blow. it changed
3: Jeff's life when he heard that album. Well, it changed jazz, rock music, totally. Well, um, what, ha- what happened was uh, our group, The Section, which was myself and Russ Conkle and Danny Korchmar and Craig Durge, Um, we were, the, we were the band with James Taylor and with Jackson Brown, and we ended up getting a deal with Warner Brothers, and uh, Peter Asher uh, got us a deal with them. And we ended up doing tours with those artists where we were the opening act and then we would come out and play with them. Well, one of the tours that we ended up on was opening for Mahavishnu Orchestra. So we did about six weeks with those guys and got to know, you know, hang with them. I mean, the first week I just spent the whole week trying to figure out where one was, you know, <laughs> sure. <laughs> it, no question. So intense watching them every night. But Billy and Cobham uh, and I became friends during that. And when the tour was over, which was in late 72, I think. Um, he called me and he said, look, I got a solo record deal. You want to play on it? And I said, God, I'd love to, are you kidding? You know, cause no, I, I would never get called for that kind of stuff. Nobody kind of put me, they would think of me as the singer songwriter guy and you know, with James people like that. So, um, he called me and he said, we're, we're going to be cutting at electric lady in New York. And, uh, I flew in on a Sunday night, and we were in the studio Monday and Tuesday, and I went home on Wednesday. Now, the thing that, that blew me away, because I had gotten to know Jan and Billy for being out with Mahavishnu, well, I was in a band called Wolfgang in the late 60s here in L.A., and our manager, one of the other acts that they had was Zephyr, and Tommy Bolin was guitarist guitarist in Zephyr. And I walked into Electric Lady, and there's Tommy. And I went, man, I hadn't seen him in like three years. And so what? How did? And so we talked about how we all hooked up and everything, and uh, that that record it went by. It was so ferocious. Ken Scott was engineering, like no six slouch. Years. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, just a remarkable, remarkable engineer. And uh, and for me, it was rough because I had a little Univox base amp, which like it was like a one twelve in this thing. And I was set up right next to Billy. So I could not hear myself at all on this whole thing. But um, every th- every track on that, we kind of basically ran the heads down because uh, to, Tommy came in a day early because he, c- he could not read music at all. So he worked with Jan learning the heads and Jan had sketched out some of the hook lines, you know, for me just to take a quick look at. Um, but basically all we did was count it off and went for it. And almost I think the most we did was two takes on anything you um, read you read right oh yeah I mean I started as a classical pianist when I was a little kid so 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 for me that was the, the fortunate thing was when studio work started for me uh, I mean because it started like instantaneously it, it was not like it built into anything it's like we, we played with James Taylor and next thing you know we're the first call guys in town it, with having mm. never been in a studio before I mean it was weird it's a very strange journey I also heard um, you uh, in some interview where you said, going from
4: Wolfgang and just being a, a fan of rock, um, yeah. and, and music genre, and having, not dumbing it down, but having to shift into what you called, you know, soft, soft rock,
3: was a task for you. Well, it, it, not so much a task, but just an, an adjustment because I was, I, yeah, I mindset. Was, yeah, I was so used to like, I mean, I was a total like Cream and Hendrix and Ten Years After and all, all that. And stuff, and all the bands I went was in, like Wolfgang, they were kick-ass rock bands. And all of a sudden, I'm I'm sitting with James Taylor, Jackson Brown, and Linda Ronstadt, and these people. You know, just rethinking, and especially starting with James was a uh, was a pivotal thing because James is probably one of the most uh, underestimated and underappreciated guitar players around. He's he's, he's remarkable. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, whenever I would work with like Clint Black or or any of those guys, all they want to do is play James Taylor songs. And they're working on getting their James Taylor guitar chops together. Um, it, but the thing with James was he's such a comprehensive player that his thumb is constantly playing bass. Uh, and, and so it was an adjustment for me rather than starting with a guy who's just kind of flat picking guitar. I really had to figure out what the hell to do.
1: It, it mm, was, sure, that, stay was, out of his way. Yeah, pretty,
3: pretty much, you know, you either ape him or or uh, or figure something that weaves around. So it ended up creating a style that I don't know whether it would have happened had I not been playing with him initially. I love how you once said in
4: in that, I think, same interview, you said that whenever an engineer utters the dreaded phrase, let's double that because you're such a, a, an organic player and you play so imp- improvisationally and so creatively. Yet
3: yeah, to actually go back and relearn the part. Oh, it's it's hideous. It's so. I mean, have
1: you actually done that? I mean, the same bass doing the same track. effort of keyboard bass du- or a bass doubling a oh, keyboard I've or tic tac bass. Really interesting. Yeah.
3: And, well, I there are times when I would take like a uh, I would have a piccolo bass with me on a session. Oh sure, That's a different but sound. It sounded like an eight string uh, when you were done with that. Or there were times where we would, I would double a part and we would slightly detune the tape machine so so that all of a sudden it's almost like you have a chorus effect going on but the problem is if i don't know in advance that i'm if i'm thinking that i'm going to be doubling it then i might be more methodical about the part i would play rather than just kind of closing my eyes and going for it but suddenly if they do you have to go back and write it out um, or you start punching, it's, it's punching. Or just keep
1: punching. Sure. It's going to take forever. Yeah,
3: it does. You know, and, and I tell them, are you I would just go, are you sure you want to do this? Is <laughs> <You laughs> the budget allow that? Right? Yeah, For, no, it's yeah, it's interesting. But that's I think one of the things that that has made me I mean, now it's going on, you know, 54 solid years of doing this. And it's still as exciting today as it was when I started. Because you never know what the hell's gonna happen when you when you get in that room and you start working. and and it, it could be the same kind of music you've been playing all these years, but each song, each moment, each different group of musicians is going to create a whole different um, situation for you. and uh, and that by embracing that, it just keeps it exciting and you kind of go,, oh, this is this was a good day.
1: Man. this is well, sure. And that must have made it. What when you did the Cobham record? That must have been nice to go. With, Damn, I'm going to get the whale here for a couple of days because man, you did. The grooves are deep on that record. Well,
3: th- that record is so deep, and, and there were things. Like, there's a bunch of stuff on there where you hear like that. The stuff that's like the electronic drums on it, um, where you hear some interlude stuff. Well, Robert Moog came to the session and brought his first prototype electronic drums, and that was Billy just with him. At Sam Ash Music, which was down the street from the studio, uh, pretty much, um, had Gene Krupa's old Chinese crash cymbal hanging on the wall in there for decades. And Billy had lusted after it for so long that they loaned it to him to do the record. And they set it up, and the first time he went to ride that, that cymbal, I looked in the control- Was it on
1: your side? (laughs)
3: <laughs> it, it wasn't me as much as I looked in and, and it, it had levitated Ken Scott and his hair was sticking straight up. And he was like, "I." it was the loudest thing you ever heard. So they ended up setting it up way behind Billy. And when he would go to ride it, he'd be playing and he'd reach behind him and be playing. And it was off mic and everything. <laughs> wow. And and Tommy Bolin, the only th- effect Tommy Bolin ever used in there was his old original Plex. So those guitar solos, everything is absolutely live. There's not one overdub on that record. Um, everything was cut absolutely live. And at one point, I, I forget which one, one of the songs, Tari and Matador, one of those songs, uh, Tommy's and Jan are trading licks back and forth, and Tommy breaks his E-string in the middle of his solo. And you can hear it on the record. You hear him going, and you hear... And that's his E string breaking. He kept right on blowing without the E string and played the hit. And we never fixed it. It's on the record that way.
1: I'm gonna to have to go back and listen to that. That's yeah. wild. It's deep. It's
3: really deep. What song was that? What track was that? Well, on? I'd have to go back and listen to the album okay. and see uh-huh. which one.
1: It's worth listening to the whole thing, Hugh, to try to find it because it's man, you won't be disappointed with
3: it. No, I won't. I won't. It's
4: Stratus
3: Red Baron gosh, oh, Quadra Four. It could be it could be quadrant four where that happened. Okay, it could be. Um, I'm going to find but, out today. <laughs> good, good. Yeah, it was it was one of those things. It went by so fast that it, we almost didn't even realize we had done it. We were the only thing we were doing was down the street. There was an orange Julius, and we were ordering tubs of strawberry Julius. And uh, and I think I was peeing pulp for about a week after that. <laughs> <talk too. laughs> peeing pulp. That's a that's a great album title, actually, or a good name for a band. Yes.
2: Yeah. imagine imagine the laminates. Watching the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction the other night, I don't know if you guys watched any of it, but Jimmy Page came out and did that tribute to Link Ray playing um, Rumble. Did you, I don't know if you guys saw it. I, I didn't, didn't see it, no. If you didn't watch it, it's really cool. And I did a little research on it. And that was, you know, that song was really kind of Jimmy's like, you know, that was his song, you know, that kind of turned him into who he is now and so on that in the in the spirit of that what's your rumble what's what what's the song you mentioned some of the bands that you were into but what are those songs that uh, early on really kind of grabbed you and kind of drew you into this in the first place I, I, I would think that in terms of pop
3: music because like when I was growing up and starting to learn I was listening to like because uh, I, I started on on upright, so I was listening to like Red Calendar and Ray Brown and and Mingus, and you know, and re- realizing that I could never do this kind of thing. But when when the Beatles came along, it was really a game changer. And and, and I still go back and, and reference a lot of things with McCartney. I mean, especially a, kind of that mid period when he was doing things like Paperback Writer and that whole period in there. where I just go, man, what brilliant. Parts he had, but I remember I was go- when I was in college. I I checked out one day in 1968, and Cream was playing in the gym. They were on tour, yeah. and I'm sitting there, and all the hype at that point was Clapton. He's a god. He's god. It's Clapton, and they open with "Tales of Brave Ulysses," and suddenly Jack opens his mouth, and I go, "Shit, he's the singer." You know, I mean, there was so much focus on Eric, right? At that yeah. point, and to me, Jack was like he. I hadn't met him a, a number of times, but it was generally him being carried out of a studio, passed out. Um, it wasn't until just before his death that, that he was clean and I, I got to meet him and hang with him. I got a picture of him in my book, flipping me off and everything. What a genius player. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Ginger,
1: too, man. Gosh, yeah, he was I my mean,
3: hero. It's those things. and And also, that was one of those periods where... In the, in the same year, there was a place called Devonshire Downs, which was a kind of a fairgrounds that was just north of my college. And they had a music festival there. And I'm standing on the side of the stage watching Jimi Hendrix plays. And I'm standing next to David Crosby. And I just, you know, was gotten turned on to all the birds and Crosby Sills. And I mean, it's, there was an energy that was going on in, in the same way. In 1966, I had been out of high school a year at that point, and the Beatles were going to be playing at the Hollywood Bowl again. And I wanted to see them so bad. And I, I tried to get tickets and the place they said now were sold out for it. Well, the year before that, I had signed up to see if I could be an usher at the Bowl. Well, they needed us- extra ushers for a special concert coming up, and it was the Beatles. So I got to see the Beatles live and and I stayed on that entire summer and got to see hendrix there um got to see vanilla fudge and the the, the love and spoonful ravi shankar india festival it was there was such an, a musical energy uh, the spoonful
1: it, sure were hot back then weren't they
3: and they, they was, were was it open, the beach boys show that they no it? oh yeah it was they opened for the beach boys at the bowl and after the spoonful played their set half the audience got up and left they were satisfied they didn't stay for the Beach Boys because the Spoonful absolutely smoked them. Well, that
4: was the that was an era. I lived in the UK during the 60s, 64 to 69. And it was great to be amongst the Dave Clark Five and Herman's Hermits and everybody that was on Ready, Steady, Go. But it was also nice to be, I was Canadian, but they always called me the Yank. But it was always nice to have them say, wow, mommas and papas, loving
3: Spoonful, you know. You know, all these bands were very impressive to the Brits. It's weird, you know, I mean, it's like took Jimmy, to, you know, Hendrix to go to England to to get any attention. Or, you know, it's like so, so many times the grass is always greener on the other side kind of moment.
4: You know, record labels actually did that as a device for launching. They wouldn't say the band was Canadian. They would send them to England and have them hang out there for a while so that when they reentered the North America, the, the, the enigma was where are they from? Well, they assumed they were from England. And that that really helped launch them into the US.
3: Yeah. It's 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 such a, an interesting dynamic in this industry. I mean, it changes, it's constantly morphing, but that was a really dynamic period for artists. And certainly all those artists that came out of that English invasion wow. uh, yeah, yeah, period. Man. You you listen to those records and they're beautifully crafted records and Strong singers, you know, in those bands. I mean, you see something goofy like Freddie and the Dreamers doing the Freddie, but he had great pipes. Man, that guy could sing his
2: ass off. And, uh, you know, and
1: songwriters way- like Ray Davis. and
2: Incredible. So going from an usher at the Hollywood Bowl, when was the first time that you played the Bowl after being an usher? Well,
3: actually, the first time I played the Bowl was in a Battle of the Bands uh, back when I was in high school. And I was playing, and it was really funny. I still have the program from it. And, and they got my name wrong in the, in the program. I was in this like receded dance band. And, uh, for some reason they got, I I don't know what that, I can't remember what the name is, but, uh, there's a picture of us and I was playing upright in that, but the first time I ever really played there with an artist would have been James Taylor, probably in around 72.
2: There's some irony in that because of James is obviously, uh,
3: connection to the beatles and he
2: went over to england to try to make it happen too yeah that's yeah
3: cool. yeah he he was kind he of he was invited, wasn't he? well no 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 he 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 was in a band with danny korchmar called the flying machine flying machine in thing. new york it, it was sort of happening but it never really happened and uh and he decided he was going to go to england and just see what was going on there and and cooch told him i because cooch uh had Peter Asher, when it was Peter and Gordon, when they would come over to the states to work, they would pick up a local band, and they ended up working with with Danny. Uh, and so Cooch uh, stayed friends with Peter Asher at that point. So he told James, he said, "Look, when you go to England, look up this guy." And James England, he, he called him you know out of the blue, and Peter had at that point just been made the head of A and R for Apple Records. And so James played him a couple of demos uh, of stuff that he had recorded while he was over there, just guitar vocal stuff. And on the spot, Peter just said, I love your voice. I love your playing. I love your song. So you want a record deal? And Peter and James said, I'd love one. And he's done. That was how it all started for him. I mean, it's just these weird little things that come together and you just go, Wow. You know, yeah. Because people want to know, how did you do it? And you right. go, I don't I really don't know. It just sort of happened. You are maybe in the right place at the right time, but you also had the goods. That's it. Got to have the goods. Yeah. And when the opportunity came, because I met James at a rehearsal for our band Wolfgang. He came to a rehearsal because he was friends with a guy named John Fishbeck, who was friends with our drummer. And he owned a studio called Crystal in L.A. And he had done all of Stevie Wonder's early record songs in the Key of Life and all that. And John would come and hang out at our rehearsals with us. And at one of them, he brought a friend of his who had just gotten back from England. And it was James. And James hung out for a day with us and played us some of his shit. And we're going, oh, this is, you're great. And, all. and then when he he had just finished cutting his um, first, uh, the J, his James Taylor album, yeah. and uh, and they were getting ready to uh, play the Troubadour. And they had Danny Korchmar on guitar and Russ Kunkel on drums. And Carol King was the piano player. And they needed a bass player and Peter and he called James, uh, James called Peter Asher, who was producing and managing him and said, I found my bass player. And they tracked me down from from Wolfgang and asked if I'd play this one gig at the Troubadour with him. And I said, sure. And we played it. And the next thing you know, James is on the cover of Time magazine as the new face of this new movement in music. And and we, we got we got like sucked into the vortex of this thing. And we suddenly became one of the greatest things was that Peter Asher insisted when I think One Man Dog was the first album we did with James as a group. Um, he insisted that our names appear on the liner notes on the album. Well, no, nobody had ever done that before. Peter was the first guy to do that. So when suddenly artists like Jackson Brown and stuff are coming along, they're looking at James Taylor's album and he's the seminal guy that they're all you know, looking up towards. And they see our names on it and they go, well, if they're good enough for him, let's call them. I remember that shift too. Yeah. yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, we I, and literally the only time I'd ever been in a studio before working with James was doing uh, a couple of days of demos with Wolfgang. No clue. Oh, the studio work. And suddenly you're getting calls all day long to work on people's albums. So it
4: also began the much anticipated custom of wanting to know who was playing You know, I mean, if it wasn't for that early, and and I do remember that shift in the early 70s, if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have known the name Gus Dudgeon or Hugh Padgham or whoever. You know, I, I just wouldn't have.
3: When you think about the wrecking crew and, you know, people would be listening to Sinatra and the Mamas and Papas and the Association and the Beach Boys, not realizing it's the same bunch of players doing everything. No credits on that stuff unbelievable
2: it's criminal actually yeah it really
3: is but thank you thank you denny tedesco for making that
2: great film oh that film's fantastic speaking of films tell us a little bit about the immediate family film well this is so weird i mean first off it's really
3: unbelievable that we got approached it's been probably four and a half years now that we've been working on this thing um a, a lot of issues came up because of covid you know it it had it had serious momentum going, and all of a sudden, it just you know drew to a, a close, and it became far more methodical getting this film done because of like for everybody else during the COVID period, which isn't gone. Now I know people that have just gotten COVID, you know, and it's 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 not the nightmare it was at at, at, at the height of it, but uh, it's still
1: bad. It's, my daughter and, had it a couple of weeks ago, and it was yeah, terrible. It's
3: still bad. I mean, I just went in the other day and got my new booster and all that stuff. I mean, I stayed on. One of the few perks of being an old fart is they get you in early on a lot of the stuff.
4: So I came I came back from Scotland. I went to Rush Fest in Glasgow and came through Heathrow and that four hour layover. Got me. I, I just saw so somebody from another country breathed on me.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You How dare they? <laughs> Apparently, this production team was going to be working on a different film that fell apart and they were kind of scrambling, tr- figuring out what to do. And the, the incredibly wonderful Lisa Roy, who's no longer with us, she passed away a, a while back.
2: Um, she, pitched- I, knew, I knew Lisa. She's the yeah. one that connected me or us the first time we talked to yeah. all you guys. Yeah, yeah. No, and then she still- she passed soon after that. Yeah, actually. no, it, it was the most heartbreaking loss because she
3: was a f- a force of nature in this business, a truly unique, special woman. Yep. But um, so she pitched the idea of doing something with the guys that you know originally were the section. On this, where we've morphed into this band called the Immediate Family, which is a different lineup than the section was. The section was, like I said, Craig Durge and Russ Kunkel and Danny Korchmar and myself were the immediate. Was that the area you had your bass guitar that had the, the peace sign carved in it?
4: Yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah, you haven't transitioned to the mandolin fret yet. Okay. No, not yet. Not yet.
3: But that base... I want to I want to know more about that. Too. That base, yeah, we'll get into that. So it was one of those things where the immediate family evolved because there was a, a label in Japan that approached Danny Korchmar and asked if he would do a solo record for them. And he, and he said, yeah, sure. Because he has he's co-written so many songs with different artists, like from James Taylor to Don Henley to Jackson Brown. So the idea was to go for him to go in the studio and and cut these songs kind of the way, you know, like when you hear these songwriter albums where they're doing it the way they originally heard the song and all that. He had no idea how he was going to do this. He had just moved back to L.A. Uh, he had been living on the East Coast. He moved back and was at a party and bumped into, and at the party was this other guy, Steve Postel. And the two of them started talking and there was a couple of guitars at this house. So they started playing together and they hit it off. So uh, Steve ended up helping Cooch do pre-production for his album, but they really had no idea who they were going to use. And, and and Cooch's idea thought was that generally like at, at the time of year, he wanted to do this, Russ and I would be on the road with somebody, mm-hmm. uh, but he called us and it was only going to be four days in the studio and we were home. So he, he, the, Russ and I did it with him and at, at after the section, we started working with Waddy Wachtel all the time too, and Waddy was out on the road with Stevie Nicks, I believe, at that point. And uh, but he was going to be home the last day of Cooch's recording, so he came in that day, and we did this album. And they and when he turned it into the Japanese, they they said, "Well, what do you want to call it?" And he goes, "Well, it's you know Danny Korshmar. but you know it feels more than that." He said, "Let's call it." Uh, Danny Korchmar and the immediate family, because he always figured we were his immediate family, because we had been together for fifty years, and 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 so that's how that the his solo album was released. And then when they asked us to come over and work, we just dropped the Danny Korchmar and just left it as the immediate family. Uh, so so we got a approach though about doing this, even though they're calling the movie "The Immediate Family," the focus of it is really on Russ, me, and Cooch. Uh, and what happened in LA in the early '70s, you know, through the '70s in the singer-songwriter movement, and it moved, it moved, it goes on over the years. And all these people, from James and Jackson and Ronstadt and Carol King and and Phil Collins and and Keith Richards, all these people are in the movie being interviewed about the group. It's just weird. To me, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I've, I've been interviewed a million times for different documentaries. And, and you know, you, you talk for 20 minutes and you end up being a 14 second song, a you know, soundbite in it. But to see an actual movie where you're the focus of the whole movie. And I think at this point, it's uh, it's done all these film festivals. I think it's won like 16 awards so far. It, it's interesting, like the guys, a lot of times people, when they interview us, they talk about legacy. And what do you think about legacy? And I could I could care less about legacy. Um, if forty years from now somebody's listening to Doctor My Eyes or Smiling Face or Stratus or something, going, "Oh, I love that song," that's enough legacy. They don't even have to know it's me playing on it. That's a tale
4: that's going to wag your dog forever, though, because
3: legacy. You can I
4: appreciate the fact that you can say so humbly that you don't care about that. But when you're as good as you are and as prolific as you are. Legacy is going to find you. It's going to.
3: The movie changed the dynamic of legacy. Because now there's an actual visible, you know, visual thing. So it's different, even though it hasn't really changed totally how I feel about it. But it, it definitely, it, it put another, you know, another layer on that onion. Yeah. So it's a, but everybody that, I love going to the things because I love doing Q&A. And so to sit afterwards and and sit for another half hour to an hour with the audience and just Tell stories and answer questions. I love it so. Um, well, it's, it's evident from your own podcast that you love music
4: at its core, and you also love to and sharing kind
1: of what you feel about it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and
4: and sharing it so profoundly because you you don't you don't you don't ramble you don't you don't mumble you speak you speak the truth and you're very I,
3: my wife was he's a blabbermouth. Ralph Cramden moment.
4: My my dear friend who used to drum with um with Rush, we used to joke about being the Aspergers twins when we got together because we would, every once in a while every once in a while he would lean in and say, "I don't care,"
3: <laughs> you know, just just to remind you that yeah. And, yeah, the game. The give-a-shit meter is really not... It's not not begging
1: at all. It's barely even moving, The
2: give-a-shit meter.
1: I like that. I love that. I need to get one of those for my studio here. Clients come in.
3: (laughs) A big one. Huge. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, hanging from the ceiling. You're sitting at the bottom going...
4: (laughs) 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 I I saw saw you do a run-through of... uh... Another day in paradise on the din. It was. It seems that apart from being a friend, you're also a consultant with and Ding. and uh, Dingwall. Yeah, um, you talked about the bass, but you played the entire run through of the live performance of, and uh, and then I think from there you you've informed that particular film about this. What was it called? The the thing on the back of your the hip the, shot.
3: He's such an incredible designer and all the hip shot stuff, all of their um, all of their um, tuning machines and all the stuff that they've come up with and bridges and stuff are really great. Um, but, yeah, that was. Uh, yes. Yeah, so explain that to, to our audience. because Actually, it's it's kind of like a, a Scruggs peg, which goes which with Earl Scruggs designed for banjo. This is on my e-string. There's a little cam assembly. What you've got is this little lever here. And what it does is it turns the tuning machine. And there's a set screw, so you can go for the interval. I usually set it for a whole tone, uh, and which was really handy when I would be working with James Taylor and people like that, because a lot of his songs were in drop-D tuning. So rather than tuning down, you just go like that, and you're down, and you go bit like that. It requires a little little finesse, tuning it so that it's accurate both ways. There's a lot of little, not tweaking, but one thing I learned we we had a uh, a tech guy uh, who w- with James Taylor who was our guitar Tech and piano Tech named Ed kolikowski now Ed um was trained at Steinway and he was like the tuner at Carnegie Hall he was Van cliburn's personal tuner but he was on the road with Zeppelin and everybody you know, he was but he he taught me like when I when I'm tuning uh, see if if I'm tuning like my G string and I want to adjust it as I adjust it each time you go and you pop the string, because what it does at that point is it equalizes the tension across the nut. Because if you just tune it, there's a certain amount of drag across the nut. So if you pop the string like that, it all of a sudden centers it. So when I'm doing the the hip shot, I've got the E, and then when I drop and I tune it for that, I pop it a few times so that it, it when the, this goes back and forth from E to D, it does it flawlessly. So there's little things, but you know this this Frankenstein bass was never a real instrument. It was it was built by John Carruthers at when he was at Valley Arts, uh, at Westwood Music uh, out here in L.A., which was like the watering hole in the '70s. Anytime you went in there, you would see anybody you could imagine in the business in there looking at instruments or back room jamming and stuff. And John was their repair guy, and so we ended up building this base and. uh what you call a not real instrument is your go-to bass and has been for a yeah it's been on you know probably a couple of thousand albums two signatures too I noticed <laughs> yeah I mean what well, it was a blank. the body on this was originally a, there was a company called Charvel out here uh east of where I live and they did all kinds of replacement uh parts back in the in the 70s and and uh I had somehow ended up with a, a 62 precision neck that i can't to the, for the life of me remember how i ended up with this neck but i got together with john because i don't like i don't like precision bass necks i, I i'm a, i i started with a fender jazz bass and that's the that's the profile i like so what and that bass we were talking about with the peace love bass that was a 62 jazz bass originally so we made a template off that neck and reshaped this precision neck into being a jazz neck. And, and, and and I had gone to Charvel and they only had, they had a stack of, of uh, older precision bodies, just blank bodies. So I, I hung all of these from a piece of wire and just tapped on them until I heard one that really resonated to me. And, And I bought that and, and it was all these little, little things that came together for this bass. We had to strip the frets out of it to reshape the neck and while he was working on the neck, I walked around the shop and I was looking at it and suddenly there was a wall covered with um, fret wire. And I picked up this one spool of wire and I said, what's this? He goes, it's mandolin wire. I said, let's try that. He goes, no, it's a base, it's not gonna work. I said, let's do it. And if it doesn't work, I'll pay you for another refret and we'll go back. And it, when we finally finished the base and plugged it in, I went, are you kidding me? It, it was great. And the pickups are, the very first generation of emgs um rob who started emg these were his very first precision pickups that they had done and we put them where jazz pickups would have gone rerouted the body and reversed their position because i figured that the set because a precision pickups are like this configuration i figured why wouldn't leo have put the um the the half of it that goes on the E and the A string closer to the bridge and have the D and the G closer to the neck rather than the opposite of the way he did it on precisions. Because I thought just by the nature of their gauge, it's going to be more clarity and it worked fabulous. And that bass is still my go-to instrument. But I was at a, a NAM show probably about 18 years ago, a good 18 years ago. And this guy comes up to me with one of his basses. Which he said, would you try one of my basses? And I, normally, I never want to touch any stuff at a NAMM show because as soon as you sit down, people start gathering. They want you to perform for them. And of course, you're going to disappoint the hell out of them because they're, you're not doing the, the the dog and pony act that they're hoping you're going to do for them. But, but something intrigued me about just his approach to this. And when I took a look at the bass, because if you look at a normal instrument, the frets are all lined up parallel but if you look on this this is called fan fretting and the concept was interesting by a guy named Ralph Novax a luthier in California and it's called the Novax fan fret system and the idea really is it just tempers the instrument like a piano because if you open up a piano the low strings are longer than the high strings at that point so much of my work was replacing synth bass on uh, on people's records like they would do the pre-production using you know keyboard bass but they got used to that that, that kind of tonality and, and that register you know that really low bottom end and i really hadn't heard a five string that i like the b string on everything up above that worked fine and as soon as you get there you kind of hear air moving it was just big and as soon as i plugged that in i went are you kidding me that that because of that tempering that b string even when i drop it down to an a um, still reads a, a perfect note and uh, so I became involved with Sheldon uh, Dingwall at that point. He's up in Saskatoon, Canada. And that's, where, that's where his shop is and everything. And I've and over the years, we ended up coming up with a signature model base for them. It's been my kind of go-to road instrument, especially. I, I use it in the studio all the time, too. But I'll go to a show and I'll see some guys, you know, the bass rig set up. And there's like a rack with about six or eight basses on it. And I go, I use one bass for the whole show. And I figure if I have one song in the show that I need a five string for, I'll just play five for the whole show.
4: What was the transition like for you, um,
3: having spent so many years with horizontal um, frets? How was it? It took about two minutes. Really? Really. It, it was it was an easy transition. You know, but it was one of those things that I remember I got together with Hutch Hutchinson, and he wanted to check. You know, he, we were just talking about some stuff, and he wanted to check one of the bases out. So he was playing it and you God, this is great. Then when he looked at it and figured out what the fan fritting, it kind of psyched him out and he wasn't playing as well as he had before, he, before he looked at it kind of thing.
4: Well, I love that your endorsements also lead to charity auctions of the base for the Tennessee elephant sanctuary. Oh,
3: that was fucking amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a fabulous place. I donate to them every year. And, and, and I've, I had a, God, one of my road cases that I loved forever came back from Phil Collins tour. And I think they had driven a forklift into it and completely crushed the side of it. It was, thank God, the stuff inside survived. But the case was just completely trashed. And I ended up putting it on my Facebook page and sold it, for, I think, for $1,800 to a guy who had a like a Phil Collins Genesis room in his house. And this had like Phil Collins and all this stuff stenciled all over it. So he got it and put glass on the top and it became a table and, and, and stuff. And the 1800 bucks I sent off to um, the Elephant Sanctuary and the freight company had to buy me a new trunk. Kind of a win. win I just missed all of the uh, stickers and stuff that were on the trunk. But, you know, it was time for a new one.
2: Anyhow, it needed wheels. And, What's the Elephant Sanctuary? I don't even know um, anything
3: about it's this. Sa- it, I heard about this years ago. And it's this e- enormous plot of land down in Tennessee. And these people, uh, they rescue elephants from circuses, from sideshows, and they get to live their lives out, well taken care of, on this fabulous land. And they get to live as they were meant to be. Are they left to their own devices, or do they
4: all have names? And are they? Oh, they alone? all have
3: names. That you, you, yeah, you, you can. You, I mean, when people donate, you can probably become like a foster feeder for them. And it's you can look it up on YouTube, and it, it is. And there's a number of sanctuaries like this around the world. Um, that are really wonderful because elephants are, I mean, most animals other than human beings are pretty remarkable. It's when you bring humanity into it that it can kind of yeah, get messy way. then. But um, I, I got to this was interesting through James Taylor. Uh, it was with his second wife, Catherine Walker. Uh, they had a, a, a friend of theirs that was this girl who worked at the San Diego Zoo. And she worked in the back area of the zoo where like when you would see Johnny Carson on the tonight show and they would come up in the zoo and they'd bring cheetahs and all kinds of stuff on the show this was the area of the of the zoo where all those animals lived and she said we went i went down uh and spent the day with checking this all out and got to spend the afternoon in the elephant compound with the elephants and you know and when you get a trunk like right in your face in there you're breathing into it, and they said if you breathe into their nose, it, you come back in ten years and breathe it, and they'll know it was you.
4: Oh, wow! I mean,
3: there's certain there's certain things like that. Like you get around this, and and it just kind of changes the way you look at life and, and creatures. And then when you see the horrors that's inflicted upon them, you know, just for vanity, yeah. jewelry, and 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 essential oils and stuff, you go really. Yeah, and piano keys. Yeah. So yeah. so yeah. how many elephants do they have there? I don't know at, at any given time I'm, I'm, there's a quite a few there. there might be I'm guessing maybe you know 30 or something like that but, but they but they get to walk and there was a really beautiful film that was done about a uh, one of the elephants that be that befriended I think a golden retriever and they spent their whole lives together and uh and it, it's it's interesting like when we were when we spent the day at the zoo. Down there, one of the things that was really amazing there was a, a cheetah that had been raised with a golden retriever, and in their relationship, the golden was the alpha. So, like when they served, when they brought out food, they would both walk over, and the dog would look at the at the cheetah and kind of go, Rrr. and the back <laughs> off until the dog had finished eating, and then the cheetah would. Eat, and you kind of go, cheetah could kill this dog in an instant, but because of the way they were raised and and, and that whole thing it, that was what was imprinted was that hierarchy
4: memory thing of being able to kind of share your breath with an i i've always thought the memory lore with with elephants was just that lore it was no yeah. but
3: it, it's, it's true it, it's apparently really really deep within. i mean there's a bunch of things like that i we were playing with phil collins down in florida and some people were at the gig and they had a it was on grassy key uh, uh, one of the one of the keys in, in the Florida chain. It was Grassy Key. They had a place down there that was the Dolphin Research Center, and they said, "Would you any of you guys want to come down and spend the day with the dolphins?" And about four of us said, "Absolutely, we'll come down there." And we went down, and the thing that was great was they had these huge tanks down there that the dolphins lived in, but they were all abutted up to the sea. And, and the seawall that separated the tank from the sea was only about six inches. So the dolphins were free to jump out of it and go swim in the ocean. then they would come back and and hang and be in, in the sanctuary. And, and okay. we got to spend the day and you could like you're in there. And when they're going by, you can feel the electric impulse of them sounding you because it's all sonar that comes out of this frontal lobe. And wow. one of the things that the main research guy said, you th- intelligence is one of the things that dictates intelligence is is the convolutions in the brain when you see you know a a brain that's you know like a human brain that's really complicated that's where it all happens and there's a model of a human brain and a dolphin brain our brain looks like a bowling ball next to a dolphin's brain it's their brain is so complicated and so convoluted and he said one of the reasons is that that animal is perfect in its environment physically there's no physical effort exerted for them to exist in their thing where for us just to stand up and walk upright requires a chunk of our brain because if you look at any of the great apes they all walk on force they'll stand up but when they start moving their their front arms are like you know moving the same way their legs are so we're not particularly efficient a lot of our Brain capacity goes to just basic life function. But one of the things that was really amazing was one of the things that they were doing down there was they were they were available for kids that were handicapped or autistic to come down and they would they would go in the water with the dolphins. And they said there was one kid who came down there, and one of their gentlest, most wonderful dolphins came right up to this kid. And started banging its snout against the kid's side. And they got really concerned. They'd never seen this before. And they they got the kid out immediately. And they took him to the hospital to have him checked. They found cancer, undiagnosed cancer, where the dolphin had been bumping its nose into him. Really? Wow. And, uh, you know, there's just shit in this world. It's so remarkable. You know, I sit here and, and I, like, I'll spend like an evening watching all the videos about the James Webb telescope. And all the deep space and you're sitting there watching the the things that a human being can come up with and looking at, you know, the beginning of time light wise and all this. And then you turn on the news and you're looking at Gaza and you're looking at, you know, like guy was just just killed here at a a pro-Israeli, pro-Palestinian thing that just happened the other day. And you're going on the one hand, humanity can be doing all this unbelievable stuff. And there's always this talk about there's no other life forms in in the universe. It's just us. Well, if that's true, why are we pissing away this little nugget of time that we have on this planet with all the pettiness and bullshit that goes on rather than going, if this is so magical, let's make it magic?
4: One of my favorite phrases is we are only immortal for a limited time. (laughs) Exactly. That That lovely phrase. That's uh, perfect. Musicians are guilty of thinking they they are, uh, <laughs> particularly you know, because of that perpetual adolescence and reluctant adulthood.
3: You know. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when I talk to people about the music business, I always go, "If you try to treat this business as an adult, it's only going to drive you crazy. If you if you treat it like you're still in the eighth grade, then it works perfectly." <laughs> it's like all that kind of insecure pettiness and and childish approach to things, which at, at times can be frustrating. But at other times you go, it's really it's like being Peter Pan getting this now, until you look in the mirror and you, you think some old dude broke into the house and you're going to call the police now. <laughs> Who's that guy in the mirror? Yeah. I know it's it gets a little freaky sometimes because I, I mean, I'll be 77, you know, and you sit there and you kind of go. Where the hell, you know? I mean, when you think back to bands you were in when you were fourteen, and it still feels like yesterday.
1: Well, thank God that it
3: does, right? Yeah, no, it's I I, I pinch myself every day when I think about how fortunate I've I've been to have been able to do the things I've gotten to do and see the world I've gotten to see and meet the people I've gotten to meet just just by picking up a piece of lumber and and plunking along on it plunking on it quite well actually that's up to everybody else because there's times where i've plunked on it and they're going that's the greatest thing i ever heard and i'm going that was horrible are you kidding (laughs) you're your own worst enemy when it comes
1: well self-deprecation you know it's uh, i've got an album that's pretty obscure well it's not so obscure now but when it first came out it was kind of panned and you know, people said they spent too much money on it. And and now there's bands out there playing the whole album live and stuff. Gene Clark's no other. You go back to that because you played on the whole record, didn't you? Really yeah. On the, every track. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I mean, first off, I was a Gene Clark fan because of his, you know, being the, the birds and and other d- different things that he had been involved with. But the funniest part of it, that was a hard album to make because the songs were Written but not finished. So when we were in the studio, we cut that. At, I think in Studio C at Village Recorders down in West LA. Um, you know, and Jesse at Davis playing guitar, and you know, I mean, I love Jesse from all the things he ever did, and playing on "Doctor My Eyes," and you know, it was one of the the great tragic characters of, of this industry. But um, but we were in there and kind of really just developing the songs as each one individually. Uh, and there were times like, uh, I forget what song it was, but there was one that we had been working on like two or three days and it was finally coming together. And it was the take. We knew it was the take. We're all kind of looking at each other while we're playing. And we feel, well, Joe Cocker had been working in Studio D and he came down the hall and was in the control room while we were recording, listening to this, but he was hammered. And he's into it. And he's apparently sitting behind the board and at some point reaches down, hits the talk back button and lets out a Joe Cocker scream into the to the mic. Literally, when we went back in and and heard the tape, it sounded like somebody took a razor blade and cut the tape. We we all stopped so instantaneously. Well, Gene ends up basically knocking down the vocal booth to get a Joe, because he's going to kill Joe now. And Joe Steve handlers are dragging him down the hall to lock him in his studio so gene can't kill him <laughs> i mean it was like <laughs> you wouldn't want to mess with gene clark man he, he was, was like, a yeah. big tough dude um, yeah. but that record <laughs> when when i hear it it's it's one of those ones that really d- took on a cult status that's pretty remarkable and when people i went to a there was this, uh, a documentary done about what was it like the bird that flies or something like that that was about gene
1: and yeah I I've got that. Yeah
3: that's yeah, that's an they, awesome. They did a premiere of it down at at the library in South Pasadena. They showed it there and Gene's family was there and I went down for this whole thing and watched it. And there's like a, a reverence that that's grown out of this whole thing and when people want to talk about the other Gene Clark, you know, it's like it's like in high school my sister had a, a girlfriend of hers and, and this girlfriend said to me one day we were talking and I was like practicing. And I mean, we were like 15, 16 years old at this point. And she goes, oh, my brother's a guitar player. Maybe you guys could get together and play. And I ended up going to their house and meeting. Well, her brother ended up being Ted Green. Now, Ted Green is probably the most revered guitar player ever that nobody knows about. Because um, he never really liked playing, he, he would he would do instructional videos and stuff. But I remember when we were on the road with Mahavishnu, and I'm sitting with John McLaughlin, and I said, "God, you know, Ed, Ted Green was a friend." He goes, "You knew Ted Green?" You know, kind of thing. It's weird, you know, when these things that general public isn't even aware of, and you you get in deep with the cats, and as soon as you mention a name, they kind of go, "Oh my, you knew him?" Kind of thing. It's weird. Because you kind of you know we just would sit around and goof around and stuff. But Dane is our you know
4: him guy. Yeah, uh, but nobody commented when when you said his name, I didn't
1: recognize. Yeah, it. I didn't. I didn't either. Yeah, which is yeah, you had me on that one. That's
4: extraordinary. That Dane didn't already either know him or play with him.
2: Something that's obviously more uh more commercial. Obviously during the eighties was uh, your work with Bill Collins and Dane and I were talking and Hugh and I as well before and I mean. Is there a voice? I mean, arguably Michael Jackson, Prince Madonna, whatever. Is there a voice in the 80s that everybody heard more than Phil Collins? I mean, he was absolutely everywhere. And you toured yeah. as part of the touring band, too. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. So take us back to that experience because I don't think that there's probably some people listening that don't understand the impact that he had. During those years, you know, in pop culture, too, you know, yeah. in general.
3: Yeah. I met Phil doing a Lee Rittenhour album. It would have been around. 1980, something like that. So it, I was aware of Phil because of Genesis, not as a solo artist. Um, but a, a, when we met, he had just done Face Value, his first album. He had just recorded that. But we we were in the studio and, and uh, he. I knew him from that. He knew me from like James Taylor and things like he was like a TV freak. So when he found out that I played on like the Rockford Files and Magnum P.I. and all those shows, he went crazy with all that because he was a huge Mike Post fan. And Mike okay. Mike Post, I'd been working with Mike since 67, um, where I was in a band called Group Therapy. And he produced us in 1967. <laughs> so these things, you know, like, again, it does that. Um, So we talked in the studio and he called me and asked me if I could do his face value tour, which would have been around 81, 82, right in there. And I was already committed to James Taylor at that point for a tour. I said, I can't do it, but man, I'd love to work with you down the pike. So and so he called me in, I think, early 84, maybe uh, to come over to England and, and do his No Jacket Required album. So we went over there and we did that at Townhouse Studios in London. And, um, and after that, uh, he got offered, you know, a tour to do. And so I said, absolutely, I let's do it. And we went out there. Well, it was still like going to be real, sm- you know, small venues. Nobody knew who Phil Collins was. I mean, they knew who Genesis was, but certainly not Phil. One of the tracks we ended up cutting on that, even though none of us were on it, was Susudio. That was Dave, David Frank, It's All Machine. That, that one track is All Machine on it. Well, all of a sudden that became like the radio darling. And all of a sudden we went, we have to change our venues. All of a sudden we went from like theaters to, to arenas on it. And when we finished that tour, it was great. and And everything went great on it. And he suddenly... You couldn't go anywhere, the supermarket, the gym or anything, and they weren't playing something off of that album. And then um, then Genesis went out and did another tour after that. And then he called me again to go back and do the But Serious album um, in 89. And then in 90, we were going to hit the road. And that tour, I think, was almost almost 12 solid months. Uh, on the road. I don't think we had any breaks. I think we started on January 3rd and finished around the 18th of December. Wow, and and it it was like it was it was just insane to watch what happened in this guy's career. But his his pop sensibility Mm, was incredible. And 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 the thing I loved so much about Phil um, was, first off, the most important thing to him was the audience. And when we would go into rehearse for a tour, um, we would rehearse a good solid month before we would hit the road because his attitude was. The first audience deserves as good a show as the last audience. Where Very so, cool. many, so yeah. many acts go on the road and they spend the first couple of weeks of their tour dialing the set in, you know, mm. where by the time like when we would be out at like Bray Film Studios outside of London, and you know, we would just rent a um, a sound stage there, so we would have almost full production going from the first day, where the crew could be redesigning sets and making sure everything worked because there was always a lot of mechanics involved in all of this stuff. And sound guys could have the sound totally dialed in and we would would record every rehearsal and then sit afterwards and listen to them. And in like the last week of the rehearsals, we would invite people out to watch the rehearsal and then sit and talk with them afterwards about what worked, what maybe didn't work. I mean, I think one night Manilow and his band came out to see the rehearsal and you know just that that professionalism of really wanting it to be right i mean phil would wear every hat possible when it came to the videos all that stuff he was deeply involved more than any other artist i've ever known in terms of really making sure everything was as good as it could possibly be
4: you're right though he was the the balladeer of the 80s his ballads were
3: beautiful and, and his his craftsmanship and his arrangements were any work i mean hugh Pageant was a great engineer to work with and stuff yeah. and you know just the whole team that they had tony smith is one of the best management people i've ever known and uh, okay. you know i mean it, it's it's great to work with people on that level that just they're pros you know there's no bullshit going on or anything like that the crew was always unbelievably great and uh and I, I I miss it. You know, I mean we we did that last tour, the not dead yet tour, where he's had to sit in a chair because he had a couple yeah. of back surgeries that really fucked him up. Like he, yeah. he, he couldn't play drums because he couldn't hold the sticks, you know, keep keep holding the sticks. Oh, and um, and then he developed this condition drop foot where he has to he really can't feel his right leg, so he has to walk with a cane. And, you know, I mean, the people, I mean, we were still selling out 80,000 seat stadiums and stuff. They wanted uh, to be in the presence of Phil. But yeah. you could tell, I mean, he, he was it was hurting
4: out there. Yeah.
3: And the thing on the last tour, I, I don't know if we would have done the last tour had his son Nick not been playing drums. But this gave, you know, because I've known Nick since he was born. And he was a really solid drummer when he was four years old. He had a little kit in Phil's dressing room. And we would hear him in there playing. And sometimes Daryl Sturmer and I would look at each other and go, is that Phil playing in there? Or? <laughs> I mean, I mean, you'd go in and there's this little squirt sitting there. And you go, play me something, Nick. And he uh, 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 and start playing. It wasn't just banging away. Because he had, he had grown up sitting there watching Phil and Chester Thompson and stuff. And he, he absorbed it all. So on the last Phil tour, he auditioned for us because we had a bunch of guys, Jason Bonham, a whole bunch of guys, you know, all the guys like Kenny Aronoff, everybody was saying, oh, can I get a shot at it? But Nick knew it. He he totally had it down. And right after that, he went out on the road with um, Mike and the Mechanic, or he went out on the uh, Genesis tour, did Genesis, then he did Mike and the Mechanics. And he and Trevor Lukather, Steve's son, have now got a band together, I think called The Effect. And they're, oh, nice. they're great. Uh-huh. They're yeah. really good. So. You know, it's it's interesting how all of this stuff evolves, and you just sort of sit and, and watch it. But Phil, it saddens me when I, I look out there and I see you know Clapton and 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 McCartney and all these guys. I mean, you know, certain ones are calling it quits. Like Elton says he's called it quits. You know, different guys like that. But it would have, it would have been great if we could have done in a couple more years with and the, and one. Of, it's funny. One of the things I love doing when I'm sitting here. At night, just to keep my chops up, is as uh, I've got board mixes from a few of our last shows, and I play the show still, even though I know I'm never going to play those songs again. Wow, with that's cool! But
1: that's cool. But
3: I was really the other night. It's been ages since I had done it, and I sat down and I and I thought I had about ninety percent of it still under my belt. If he called me tonight to play a show, I could I could do it.
4: When I watched you playing uh the ding dingwall bass,
3: yeah, and and going through the, I mean, it was. It was flawless. I mean, it was completely on point. I never prep for anything. It's like when I do my YouTube channel, I mean, I do, I'm flying by the seat of my pants. I, 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 if I need to do a little homework, it's strictly to write down who's on the album and stuff so I can get credits to engineers and all the people involved. But I, I like it's like one of I did a T-shirt at one point that that said I don't I don't rehearse my spontaneity. <laughs> Good. And and that's I, I like kind of just flying by the seat of my pants because that's how I work in the studio. I mean that's why I can't double things because I'm yeah. not. That's not my state of mind. I'm really living in the instant. Speaks volumes for your style and your the beauty of what you play.
4: As good a medical illustrator as you might have been, I'm glad
3: you didn't go that route. Yeah, me too. Me too. I mean, it's like people keep asking, are you going to start drawing again or anything? I go, I just, I'm amazed at at this. I thought by the time I was this age that I'd be, you know, kind of out to pasture and looking at other things to do. Do you draw well? Are you a good illustrator? Yeah, I love like hyper realism. We might get along.
1: You've played with so many wonderful artists. Is there somebody... That uh, is still around. That if you had a chance, it would be the one thing that the one person artist that you would like to play bass for. Do you have any wishes
3: like that? Oh, there's a lot. There's still a lot of people like that. And one of my favorite guys always was Winwood. I've never had a chance. Oh, sure. I'd love to have had a chance to play with Steve. Um, Yeah.
1: He's too busy playing the bass lines with his left foot live still. I saw him a few years ago. He was incredible. But
3: Oh, yeah. Well, it's like the old joke. You know, how many bass players does it take to screw in a light bulb? None. The keyboard player does it with his left hand. Okay. Right. <laughs> um, no, there's all kinds of, I mean, I never really had a chance. I, I had a, a, a call to do it, and I couldn't do it. It was with Elton. Um, mm. when, when Bob Birch, his bass player, was hit by a truck up in Canada, and almost died. They called me and asked me if I could take over and finish the tour. But I was working with an artist named Veronique Sanson in France. But, you know, there's lots of artists out there. I, I never had a chance to work with Paul Simon. And I've always loved, I've worked with Garfunkel a whole bunch of times, but never got to work with Paul. So there's, you know, I mean, as busy as I've been, there are a lot of artists out there. And then also you end up hearing, you know, other projects sometimes and you go, God, that would be Fun to work on, you know. I remember Rick Ocasek calling me once to work something, and I couldn't work with him. Or it'd be fun to, like, you know, what would it be like to work with Trent Reznor or somebody? You know, there's all these these different cats all over the place. So you know, every time the uh, the phone rings or the, I get an email to do something, that's why I'm excited because it's you know a new adventure. And and I I and I'm still like before. Before COVID, I had never recorded from home before. I've never had a home studio. If people wanted me to do something, I would say, well, send me a file and I'd go over to friends' houses that had studios and we would cut the track and then go to lunch kind of thing. It was our social life. But then with COVID, that disappeared and a friend of mine in LA called me and asked me if I would play, they were going to do a cover of Easy Lover, Phil Collins, Philip Bailey. And uh I said I'd love to do it, but I'm not set up at home. I don't know. I couldn't record, and nobody was going to see each other. And uh, he knew somebody at at SSL, and they ended up sending me an SSL 2 Plus interface. And I called Steve Postel from our band, and he gave me a little over-the-phone tutorial on GarageBand. And I've ended up doing about 18 albums from home now. I'm going to call you to do some tracks for me then. I would do it in a second. That's good to know. I would do it in a second, you know, and um, I just finished. A, I, and I, it's the fun part of it is like I've been doing projects for people from South America, from Scandinavia, from Japan, where everything else, when it was regular studio work, you, you either flew to somebody or they were in town working. Where here, here. We can be all over the world. And what I usually do um, when I'm doing these is since we're really not in a room having a dialogue together, um, what I'll do at that point is I'll end up doing about. You know, whatever song I'll do, like three or four passes, giving them alternate things where they can cut and paste a little bit if they want a simpler part and a busier part. Um, but it, it it was a nice way to still feel viable during a period of unviability. That was weird. That was just watching your, your date book disappear like a fart in a hurricane. It's yes. like- <laughs> <laughs> you know, next year I've been talking to you know Lyle's people, and Lyle love it. We got it looks like a pretty full year next year, and our the immediate family has gigs, and we got this rock legends cruise to do, and we've got our new album Skin in the Game. We just finished the um, approving all the artwork for the cover and everything, and that'll be coming out probably in January, and the documentary film. There's lots going on and I'm still hustling my t-shirts and my books and <laughs> skin in the game. Who that one? Well, I think I think it's, a, it's it's a song and it's basically like in this world we live in, don't don't mouth off unless you've got skin in the game.
4: Okay. you know, gotcha. so,
3: you know be, a, be you know you can't complain about things if you're not doing anything about it. You got to Is that the
1: title up. track of the record?
3: Yeah, that's yes, the title okay. of the album. Okay.
4: Jane's last album was called Memory Mile uh to bring, to bring things full circle. And only thinking that elephants had a memory, like uh, an amazing memory, was something I just assumed was lore until you put me right today. But his cover has the elephant walking down the railroad track. so I think you've kind well, of. Oh,
3: that's that great! That's great. You know, it's just like every day can be an adventure. I mean, the hard part for me at this point is like my every day is now turned into caregiver mode. I did a uh, a. a, a video this morning. Like the past few days, I've been doing play along videos uh, showing bass parts to Lyle's music. And I'll probably do more tomorrow. But we had the uh, the uh, the occupational therapist coming. So I had to do something quick. So I, I dug up a, a Latin project I had worked on and played a few tracks from that and talked about that. Um, but it's one of the things that it's really been fun, like doing this YouTube channel, where I really hadn't intended to do a YouTube channel. And After Phil's tour, I had a few guys writing to me going, hey, we saw you like in Germany. It was in a stadium and it was amazing. But, you know, there's certain details that you just aren't going to hear in that environment. And so I thought, well, I I had our front of house guy send me a a couple of shows. And I ended up using the one from Adelaide, Australia. And what I do is I got my laptop. I plug a little Bose speaker into that and I got an amp sitting next to me. So I just got i am sitting here with a, a selfie stick being hooked to the drawer of my desk with a c-clamp and, right <laughs> and, and i just put my phone in that and i kind of do a little quick run through to get a balance between that speaker and and so that the bass amp is a little bit louder than the track so they can hear the exact part and after like th- I, did, I started with the first song of our show and by the third day the third song um i had guys writing going we love your channel and I go, what are you talking yeah, about
2: that's great and They
3: go, oh no you're you so what you and now there's, I think, about 245,000 people on the channel. And, you know, it, it, it's really fun to turn people on to music that they've never heard. And I've had so many people going, you know, we, I love that stuff. We just went and we bought all their music, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it, it's really it's kind of a really fun thing. But it's also another one of those things that made me made me address my discography, which I never done before like if i did an interview and somebody said well who have you played with i'd kind of sit there and kind of go uh you know you you don't even know you i mean you kind of just blank out where now i've had to like upload all, all the crap from all music and all these different sites and i've found so many records that i totally forgot that i've played on and getting back to go and visit them you know and then you suddenly memories start coming back of that studio and that and funny things that might have happened during that session so you can share more intimate stories and stuff it's really been fun and i think today was i forget today was my 1512th video since i started the show <laughs> and on and, and the thing that was fun this summer on on lyles tour um, I took the, the everybody with me on the road. I, I, I filmed every venue we played and took people on all the back scene, all the basements of old theaters and attics and roofs and, uh, and shared it. So people were going, this is like being able to be on the road with you without actually having to try. Yeah. I, I love it. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's really, it's, a, I mean, the road can be tedious to say the least. And when you can find little hooks to uh to just you know to take you out of you know just kind of the, the tedium of of what goes on when it's not those three hours on stage and the sound check and the rest of it is you know the stuff what you're getting paid for it's all that other stuff it's especially nice when you love the people you're with too you know, it's 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 great I mean I always pinch myself when I'm around any of these people it's like when any of those people like you're kind of around them and then they 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 go how you doing and they go why do they know me. You know, so <laughs> it's like if Jimmy Page is there, Clapton, and they call me Lee, I go, "Why? Why do they know?" I mean, it's, uh, weird. I mean, yeah. it's your own perspective of you is it ends right there, it ends right at the skin. You know, everybody else has this imagery, but you're going, yes. It's still the insecure nerd from San Fernando Valley in, your, in <laughs> your... don't, don't don't ever lose
4: that. Yeah. That's, I I would probably never use that particular." Um, t- descriptor but yeah i know what you mean it's nice to stay out of your own way
3: yeah yeah i mean i'm appreciative of everything but i also you know i I also know what what's right and what's not for me and it's always funny other people you know they come in with this thinking about you in a certain way and you're going wow they got it wrong but i'm not going to bust their bubble i'll let them think that way all right
2: man this has been really great we really appreciate the time oh it's a pleasure i'll come hang with you guys anytime